Does Jesus only enable me to make the cut when I die? Or to know what to protest? Or to know how to vote? Or agitate? And organize? It is good to know that when I die, all will be well. But is there any good news for life right now? If I had to choose, I would rather have a car that runs than good insurance on one that doesn't. Can I not have both? And what social or political arrangements, however important in their own right, can guide and empower me to be the person I know I ought to be? Let me say that again. And what social or political arrangements however important in their own right, can guide and empower me to be the person I know I ought to be. Can anyone now seriously believe that if people are only permitted or enabled to do what they want, they will then be happy or more disposed to do what is right? One man remarked that Jesus of Nazareth has been the most dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries if it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of that history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? Today we are going to talk about the ramifications of the gospel in our lives. (laughs) And it's a difficult subject because if you're like me... Many of us have been raised in the church that have a very, I guess we have a skewed view of what the gospel means, what the implications are for our lives, what the ramifications are for my life tomorrow on Monday when I go back to work, another day or when I stay in my home home with my children or whatever the case may be. The gospel has massive ramifications and implications for our lives. The concept of the gospel is that those ramifications would even be put to effect on a Friday night (laughs) or during a hangover on Saturday morning. Ooh, that hurts. Am I actually, what does Jesus say to me about Is it okay for me to, if I love this woman, we're going to get married for us to sleep together? Is it okay for us to have oral sex? Is it okay for me to take from the company, even if it's four pencils? I I mean, we can list the day-to-day little, tiny, on-the-ground, grassroots encounters that we have. Does the gospel reach into these minute details of our lives? It's a really good question. So I want to walk through at the beginning here. If you'll turn with me to Romans chapter 6. This is our last Sunday. I want to read uh, something from Willard. By the way, if you haven't got it, get it. It's a phenomenal book. It's called The Divine Conspiracy. Uh, He has phenomenal, I think he's one of the greatest writers on just what, what, as far as talking about the life of Jesus 
and what it means to be a disciple and apprentice to Jesus. I could talk a lot about that. But we have been talking about our journey, the, journey, the three journeys that we're talking about is our journey into the gospel, right? Our journey into community and our journey into service. This is the last week that we're talking about what would it really look like as we think about our mission to grasp God's vision for our lives. One of the ways that we really live out that mission is saying, well, what does the gospel mean to me? We're a gospel-centered people, and then we're a community-centered people, and in service as well. These are the things that God asks us to do. Next week, we're going to start our series on community. But today, I want to hit with you, or talk with you, about something that really impacts me, That I and I, I, I think we're all kind of at, at this place, and I... And the way that it, this kind of came out, actually, this was a weird, it was such a weird week for me. I got to, to I got here this morning early and just had felt like almost just the Lord pushing and saying, that's not what I want you to say today. And it's not like the Lord showed up like on my computer, as you know, or anything, and boogie woogie or anything like that. It, it was just, it was just wasn't, it was just not, I was praying and I was struggling and and so I really will trust that these are the words that the Lord wants us to give. But how can you go wrong whenever you talk, you talk about the ramifications of the cross? How can you go wrong when you talk about Romans? <laughs> you know, so maybe I'm defaulting. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Who knows? We'll trust that the Lord, and he does, he's going to do something uh, great with it. Turn to Romans chapter 6. If you're not there, we want to talk about, I want to, Get into a few things that I think I are, are especially true because I've I've been talking with with many of you, and these are some things that we're classically struggling with. I think as it relates to our own lives, but as we talk about the ramifications of the cross, I want you to read uh, just read along with me there in Romans six. We're going to start reading at verse five. Look what Paul's saying now. Paul is um, really uh, make sure that you get an overall all, all umbrella here. Paul is trying to really make a distinction with these people between what it really means, what your life now in Christ really means versus your former life without Christ. You follow? So that's the contrast. And Paul writes very poignantly and very acutely about contrast here. So this is how he starts it. Romans 6, 5. If we have been united with him like this in his death, and he is obviously, as we walk through this, I'm going to highlight some things that are the real ramifications of the cross. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Verse 6, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. So he's trying to give us an understanding of, of sin and how it plays out and th- how we should be thinking about it in our lives. Now, if we died with Christ, verse 8, we believe that we also will live with him. Look at the, look at the wording of, about, of Christ, how Christo or Christ-centered he is in so much of what he talks about. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Verse 9, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. He's going to use that as an illustration. The death he died, he died to sin. Now, verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. Well, then what in the world? Why do we feel so poisoned and addicted in our sin? If he says, count yourself, which is another way of like this, think about it like this, that you're dead to sin. It's not like he's saying, 
count yourself as dead to sin, you're dead, which means that you don't have the possibility of sinning. But he says, I want you to think about your, the actual think about is be, consider yourself as dead in the grave to sin. But alive to God in Christ, contrasting thoughts. Verse 12, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body. Hey, let's look, let's look at that again. When I were thinking about, and he's, he's saying, do not offer the parts of your body. We're thinking about all the parts of our body. Okay. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. See, Paul places great importance in the fact that once you have been bought, the cross paid the penalty, you've been forgiven, you've been given a new kind of life because of that one watershed event in in your life, that colors everything. Now you live a life of because of that thing, now I see life completely different. Now I even understand that I'm forgiven. Now I understand that I have a new power. He really is is cross-centric or Christ-centric, if you will. Let's read that again. Gentlemen, pay attention. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. So then look, look, look what he says. He says, he answers the question that we all would say. Well, this is great. This grace thing's awesome. I can just kind of do what I want. Look what he says. What then? Shall we sin because we are not, not under the law, but under grace? By no means, he says. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves, talking about the concept of offering yourselves to someone to obey him as a slave, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? whether you are slaves to sin, which lead to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin before you knew Christ, is what he's saying, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, which is the gospel. You have been set free from sin, and he have become slaves to righteousness. Very, very powerful piece of scripture. And the first ramification that I want to hit on somewhat quickly is this. The cross, as Paul talks about here in Romans 6, 5 and 6, 8. Look at 6, 8 when he says, Now if we die with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. And in 6, 5, where he says, If we have been united with him, this concept of union is a real piece of Pauline theology. It's, it's a beautiful piece, this union that we have with Christ. Now, when we think about this, the, that's really the first ramification of the cross. The cross unites me to the death and the life of Jesus. Let me say that again. It's the first ramification of the cross. It unites me to the death and the life of Christ. This is not a, a, a seminary class in case you're here for the first time. This is going to mean something to us. It should. My life now, I'm in union with Jesus. I'm in union in his death and I'm in union in his in his resurrection and life. When you're suffering, as we talked a lot about last week, that's because you are in union with Jesus, who is the suffering servant. We do suffer. We will suffer. 
I was talking with somebody this last week, and I, I said to them, my life is, looks like a lot like two railroad tracks that seem to go in the same direction. One is suffering and one is beauty. Or one is suffering, one is grace. We just kind of seem to have the wheels on that track, and I never seem to get derailed off the suffering piece. Right? So the key here is, as we think about being united with Christ in our death and life, don't focus so much now. Let's not focus so much on our own spirituality. But think about focusing on our, your union with Jesus. It's two different concepts. Versus your own spirituality and what you got to do for God and, 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 and the things that you've got to in some way check off the list or the, the, the reading of the Bible this week and the, and the time alone with the Lord or whatever the case may be. Think about what it would look like for you to be in union and united with Jesus this next week. Lord, how can I become in union with you this next week? What does that union look like? Sinclair Ferguson said this. The first thing to remember, this is great. The first thing to remember is that we must never separate the benefits. Regeneration, our new birth. Justification, which is basically our standing before God is righteous because of Jesus. And our sanctification now, the idea that we live for God beyond the cross. We never separate those things from the benefactor who gave us those things. And the benefactor is Jesus. He's the one who gave us those things. The Christians who are most focused on their own spirituality may give the impression of being the most spiritual. But from the New Testament's point of view, those who have almost forgotten about their own spirituality because their focus is so exclusively on their union with Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished are those who are growing and exhibiting fruit. So what would it look like? What would it look like for us to be in union with Christ. Look at the language in the New Testament. It should excite you to see that Jesus even, look at all the wording that he had, wanted to be in union with his Father. Right? In union. That they were in sync. Alright? Are you feeling out of sync right now in your marriage? Your first question may need to go, Lord, am I in sync with you? Am I, do I have union with you? Do I have intimacy with you? Am I hearing from you what you have for me in my marriage? Right? But it's one of the first and beautiful ramifications of the cross. It's what some of our most contemplative and beautiful authors and artists sing and write about. Is this concept of this beautiful, mysterious union that now we have with Jesus because he lives inside of our lives and because he's the hope of glory. And you artists that are here, please keep singing and writing about that. Because I need to be encouraged and I need to sing those songs. And I need to read those books. That's why I love Nowen. Henry Nowen. He has some tremendous things to say about our union with Jesus. Right? And obviously, the scriptures have much more to say than my good friend Henry. The first ramification is the cross unites me to the death and life of Jesus. Let me give you the second one. This is... This is really good, and this really comes from um, something that I'm dealing with in my life. Do you sense my frustration? The concept that Paul gets to here is the second ramification is this. Let me, let me say this twice. I am free from the domination of sin. This is what Paul's saying. I am free from the domination of sin. Now, if you're like me, if you're, if you, if you, we're real, there's many of us in here who 
we, we are, we're, we're, we're liars. We're liars to ourselves because we tell ourselves that has, that sin or this issue, whatever it is, and we can just span the globe for all the sin that we, each of us deal with. We believe that that sin has absolute certain and pervasive power in our lives. We believe it. We're constantly lying to ourselves. We believe that our sin and our addictions rule us. They reign over us. Don't we? And yet Paul here says in verse, what, in 618, look what Paul says. You have been set free from sin and you have become slaves to righteousness. In 6.6, 6, he says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. In 6.11, he says, We're dead to sin. And then obviously in 6.14, I love that, where it says this, For sin shall not be your master. Now, I'm not preaching to you this morning about a gospel of sin management. What are your sins? What I am going to talk with you about is beneath that layer, there's many of us that have that can believe, especially if we are involved in habitual sin, that we believe that that sin trumps the gospel. And I've talked with you, and plus you need to know I've talked with me a lot too about this. And I believe this too. There's many times I believe, well, how in the world could I ever, how in the world, watch my... Listen to my language. How in the world could I ever gain mastery over this part of my life? What's my problem with that statement? Right? How, then, then what would I say? What should my prayer be? Help me. How, okay, how, how do I give this to you? Yeah. Or how about this? Let, let's go back one step and say, do I actually believe no, seriously, do I actually believe that the Lord has given me a power, that his power of sonship in my life is greater than my sin or my struggle or my past? Do I believe that? I don't know if we do. I, we struggle with it. And as a result, we, we, we're, we, have, we don't have, seem to have a lot of hope. And we're supposed to be a hopeful people. If I'm free from the domination of sin, Paul says, that means that I'm free from the guilt and the shame of sin and the sins of my past. Let me say that again. If I'm free from the domination of sin, then what naturally follows off that is I'm free from the guilt and shame of my sin. We don't believe that either. We don't live like that either. I had some phenomenal times with... With, with folks this week and I was, I was amazed by how many people I talked to this week that as they were sharing their story with me I felt like there was such an umbrella of shame over their lives over their hearts and over their words you ever talk with anybody like that? you probably have but you talk to yourself that way this morning you talk to yourself that way in the mirror how, how in the world could I ever be this person because of what I've done when I was a college student at such and such or fill in the blank? Well, when I was in college, I, I was pretty, pretty crazy. 
And I don't want to go into the lurid details of the story. I can't really believe that I, I even did the things that I've done. Shame. And we all can do it too because we, we can be a people that we want others to think well of us. And so God forbid we would be able to even, even now tell them about our struggles and our problems, our addictions, because if we do, we'll feel shame. Follow the theological truth. The theological truth is if I've been free from the domination of sin and it doesn't have mastery over me and I'm not a slave to it, and if it's been buried and I'm dead in it, then I don't have guilt. Christ paid for that guilt. And even now, it needs to be the kind of way that we're actually in community and we tell each other it all. Here it comes. This is what's going on. And we minister the gospel to that person. But that's not the kind of church we've been raised in, right? That's not the experience we've had. We don't have those kind of grace friends that give us a hope. We don't have the kind of grace friends that look at us and say, that's not who you are. That's not your identity. Did you know that you are now forgiven for that? That you can live out of a whole newness of life because of what the Scriptures say to you. Does that mean now that you, if you do that... I guess I would, I would stop and ask you this. Does anybody truly know what's really going on in your life? No, I mean, like, really. <laughs> okay? You know, you know what I'm talking about? Like, really? Do you? Does the gospel even go to the really? Does the gospel go that far? We don't have to live in shame. We don't have to be dominated by sin, Paul says. Are you kidding me? You're free men. You ever see a brave heart? It's dangerous. You can, get, you can get pretty dangerous when you're a free man. When you get to the point where you go, I really don't care what you think anymore. Who cares? Eat a big gobboon of crap. I, 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 you know, there's a part of me that I could give so I don't even care anymore. It's so great to be 48. It's so awesome. Because you know what? It's only in Christ's righteousness that I can even have no shame. It surely isn't because of your righteousness or mine. Do you? <laughs> Good grief. Right? But it's a ramification of the cross. The ramification is I'm free from the domination of sin. I'm free from the domination of guilt and shame. Is it a message of hope for you today? I hope it is. Do you also know that you and I stand righteously accepted by God because of Jesus? This is such a beautiful truth. Boy, if we could live in this. You and I stand righteously accepted by God because Christ, every day, we together must wake up with the thought that we are accepted based on what Christ did for us in his sinless life and sin-bearing death. Not on what we do for God. You're accepted. You're in you're accepted, you're in. You're accepted. You are not going to fill, run on that rat wheel long enough to finally get acceptance even though you think you are. Well, my husband doesn't accept me. My wife doesn't accept me. My girlfriend, my friends don't accept me. It's true, they won't because they're just sinful people who are on a journey to the Lord, right? But we have one that does. We find our acceptance. I went and saw 
Grand Torino. Did you guys see it yet? I'll try not to ruin it for you if you haven't saw it. But Grand Torino is the is the perfect perfect illustration of the gospel of our time. And what basically I'll give you the nutshell is this: Clint Eastwood has a has a car. It's a beautiful 1972 Grand Torino. His neighbor, who's a young man who's lost his way, decides one night that because he's going to please his friends and want to somehow get in this gang, he's going to steal the car. So he goes to steal the car, and Clint Eastwood catches him. He ends up running away, running, you know, and, and finally ends up coming back days later and looks at Clint Eastwood and says, I've got to come to you and tell you that I apologize for the fact that I tried to steal your car. They live right next, next door to each other. So that was kind of awkward there, right? And then, and then, and then here you go. Here's, here's the gospel that we all know. The young man goes on quite an arduous journey of working his way back to favor with Clint Eastwood. It's a brilliant movie. And what he does is, is he finally has to work and he works for Clint Eastwood and he, he waxes the car and all that kind of thing. And that's basically what we think. You see, our God wasn't Clint Eastwood. Our God was the God who, who basically when the young man came and said, I'm sorry for stealing the car. Your sins are, your sins are forgiven, my son. Everything that I have in this house is yours, including the Grand Torino. Take it out as often as you want. See, because God says that we are a royal priesthood. You're sons and daughter of the king. That's grace. That's forgiveness. And it's a completely different economy and different thing that we hear. But we struggle with it because of the so many messages we hear are contrary, right? It's contrary to the gospel. So let me finish up by saying this. Let me, let, me, let me give you the three I hit on. The ramifications of the cross. The cross unites me to the death and life of Jesus. The cross says that I am free from the domination of sin and guilt. The cross says that you and I stand righteously accepted by God. We want acceptance so bad. Can we please, just before I go on, can we please be the church of acceptance? Don't we, aren't we all just tired of it? Can we just accept each other on the journey and where we're at? And I'm not talking about accepting each other on the journey and getting all around the campfire and saying, oh, great, we're a bunch of sinners, man. Oh, wow, dude. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about we're on a journey. We're, we're moving towards somewhere. But we need to accept people where they're at. And we need to love them in that place, right? Can we be that? Can we be that generation? I think your generation is probably the first one who can. My generation surely was not. That's another sermon. So now what? So now what? Listen now. I have the power to do the life that Jesus calls me to. Do you hear what I just said? As a result of the ramifications of the cross, I have the power to do the life that Jesus calls me to. Because of my faith, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Did you hear it? It's easy to miss it because we've heard it so many times. I have the power to offer the parts of my body as instrument of righteousness. Even this next week. Even this next week at 11.30 at night in front of the computer. I have the power that lives inside of my actual body 
to be an instrument of righteousness. That's the truth. Will we choose the truth to believe the truth or the lie? So now, watch this now. I open myself up as a result of this. I open myself up. This is important to get because this is it all kind of fulcrums on this point. I open myself up to the life that Jesus proposed for me. Do you hear what I said? I'm, gonna, I'm opening my hands. If I could open up my heart and this part of me, I would open up that to you. And I would say, I open up myself now to the life that Jesus proposed. That's called kind of like gospel-centered sanctification. The way I want to live now is I'm opening myself up to the life that Jesus proposed. My sanctification and who I am in Christ is all about Jesus and what he's done and what he said. So I'm developing what's called a gospel ethic for my everyday life. The ethic basically means is this, these values that govern me and they govern us as a particular culture of people as Christians. And at the center of this ethic right here, at the center of this ethic is a man and his name is Jesus. And he came and he lived and he died and he rose again and he's coming back for us. That's Jesus. Who he is, what he did, what he brought, what he said, what he didn't say. There are massive problems, though, when we talk about this because the road can kind of become muddy and unclear to us because if I'm truly going to open myself up to the life that Jesus proposed, you're probably not going to like me for saying this next few things. If I truly am going to open up myself to the life that Jesus proposed, I've got to begin to be honest with myself in my thinking about Jesus. And I've got to tell you and confess to you that I use these words. If I'm going to open myself up, I just have this kind of thought of it's too demanding. It's too radical. Isn't that what we think? Are you kidding me? I, 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 what are you talking about? I can't forgive my enemies. I can't even forgive my grandfather. How do you want me to forgive my enemies? What are you talking about two miles? I, what's a quarter mile? What's an inch? I hate my father. Some would say here. I hate people. I hate certain individuals. I am absolutely and completely embittered because of the past that, I, that, that God has dealt me. It's far too demanding for Christ to say you need to forgive and you need to suffer and you need to love. Are you kidding? It's too outdated. That was good for another time. That was good in the Jesus time when they wore around bathrobes and halos and all that stuff. Little sheep running around and, you know, everything. It's just kind of cool. And that's great for that time. Jesus standing on the hills, just kind of blessing people. Just, you know, kind of like this, you know, nirvana existence. <laughs> so, you know. It's too outdated. It doesn't have any relevance to me in 2009. What are you talking about? The, the gospels, what Jesus is doing. It's too impossible. Come on, I can't gouge my eyes out. Right? Are you kidding me? I look at women every day, somebody says. I really struggle with that. Well, Jesus says, take your eyes out. If it was true, then there would, and all of us as men, if we truly did, took that, absolutely. 
we none of us would be here with eyes today, right? <laughs> so what do we do? Do we say, well, Jesus, what are you saying there? Are we willing to explore that, or are we willing to say, well, it's obviously impossible, it's too demanding. It's almost to the point where we almost wink at the Lord. We almost say, oh, it's good, Lord, this, this life you called me to, I kind of wink at it and say, it's kind of, that's great, good. Hey, you know, I, I, you know, help me. I, I, I kind of, I believe in you. Here I go, right? It's true. If we're to really be honest about ourselves and open up ourselves to a gospel-centered ethic and a sanctification for our lives, we've got to understand that that sanctification all comes back to one man and what he said. It all comes back to that. That's it. And the the thing I've got to close with is that I think that if we don't develop in our lives a more believable and credible what's called Christology, what we believe about Christ... We're lost in our sanctification. <laughs> so I'm going I'm to finish by reading you this. And it's a little long. But I think it's so important because it has a lot to do with what we think about Jesus. Can you just follow along, if you, if you will? Our commitment to Jesus can stand on no other foundation than a recognition that he is the one who knows the truth about our lives and our universe. It is not possible to trust Jesus or anyone else in matters where we do not believe him to be competent. We cannot pray for his help and rely on his collaboration in dealing with real-life matters we suspect might defeat his knowledge or abilities. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? We believe, well, our life is kind of special, Lord. You wouldn't really know that you know know about this. Jesus can't. Jesus can't be defeated. And we and can we seriously imagine that Jesus could be Lord if he were not smart? (laughs) If he were divine, would he be dumb or uninformed? Once you stop to think about it. How could he be what we take him to be in all other respects and not be the best informed and most intelligent person of all, the smartest person who ever lived? That is exactly how his earliest apprentices in kingdom living thought of him. He was not regarded as perhaps a magician who only knew the right words to get results without understanding or who could effectively manipulate appearances. Rather, he was accepted as the ultimate scientist, craftsman, artist, and God. Small wonder then that the first Christians thought he held within himself all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's Colossians 2.3. Did you know it's true? That Colossians 2.3 says that in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do you want it? Do you want this life that Jesus proposed? Because that's where all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge will be. Think about that. Think about that this next week. Think about whatever it was that we talked about that the Lord kind of pricked your heart on. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, so much for your gospel. Thank you for Paul. And I, we're so encouraged that such unbelievable things you inspired him to talk with us about, that you gave him the words, and yet he says that he's the worst of sinners. And we feel like that today. Many of us feel like that. All all of us probably feel like that. How how in the world 
did you ever look down upon us and do this wonderful work for us? You called us to yourself. That you sent us your son, Jesus, and we now can actually have a union with you. Lord, I pray that we would learn truly what it means to have your gospel at the center of our lives this next week and that we would even become apprentices and students of your truth, of uh, the life that you've called us to. So many of us have so many layers to pull back. We need you to pull the layers back on, on the onion for us. We, we struggle with things that we've heard in the past. and Lord, we, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just penetrate our hearts, convict us, use your truth to do a work in us. I pray uh, specifically, Lord, for people in this room who feel desperate and feel like their, their past completely defines who they are. I pray for the men in this room who feel shame and feel alone in their shame. I pray your name and your resurrection and your love and your power on their hearts. Thank you. Amen.